boom. Welcome to this week's edition of An Hour of Your Life with the musical stylings of Steve. My name is Kim. And I am Steve. Go ahead. Bum, bum, bum. Okay, so. <laughs> Kim loves that song. I do love that song. You wrote it. But that's not why I love I mean, I love it because you wrote it, but it's also a good, catchy song. So, welcome back to another another week. It's been kind of a... It feels like a long time since we've uh, been in the studio because we recorded our episode with Izzy Rock on a Wednesday um, so instead we of our, on, on our, our normal, normal Saturday. Saturday. Yeah, so it feels like a long time. It hasn't probably... I mean, it hasn't been a long time for you guys because we put the show out on Saturday, but it feels like a long time for us. So we're kind of getting back in the groove of things. And we're excited to be down here doing the recording right now. Yeah. Because we like this. We do. Uh, so... Um, I'm really this this week is a good show. It is. I we were talking the other day about how uh our, some of our favorite shows are when one of us knows something a little bit about something and the other one doesn't know anything about it. Uh and so this week we're going to be talking about the Battle of Los Angeles, which Kim did not know anything about this. And I would venture to say probably a lot of you have never heard of the Battle of Los Angeles because I don't think it's a really super well-known thing. Okay, but this episode, it's absolutely a true story that happened at the beginning of World War II. It's a story about how mass hysteria can run wild. Now, looking back now, we can laugh at this and say, look how silly this was. But we can think, and when we get to the end of the episode, we're going to talk about other real-world events that happened because people say, oh, that could have never happened. But it did. Steven Spielberg made a spoof movie about this. It was called 1941. So Kim and I sat down and we watched this because it's she'd a, never heard of about yeah, it. Yeah, and it's a really good movie. It's got uh, the classic cast of SNL. So like Belushi, Ackroyd, John Candy days. Um, so it's really, it's that kind of humor. And it's it's very, very funny. It's kind of slapsticky, which is not necessarily my favorite. But it was, it's good. Yeah, I mean, it was a spoof movie about what happened in February 1942, but as a spoof, they called it 1941, but it take it took all the, not nuances, but all the, what, what word am I looking for here, Kim? It took all the... All the things that happened. The and thing that kinda, happened. Yeah, it kind of poked fun at it. It made it just a little bit more bizarre, but I you know what? I don't know if it made it any more bizarre than what I, this honestly, story is. Honestly, yeah. No. It's, it's I, a pretty intense story. Okay, but... The, the the Battle of Los Angeles at the time was not funny. There were some serious consequences that happened here. There, some people died indirectly to the story. There were a few fatalities. And part of this hysteria was what eventually led up to the Japanese-Americans being interned during the beginning of World War II for the period of World War II, yeah, which is not a good part of American history. but No, and we're not going to get super into that, but um, if you would like to learn more about the Japanese internment camps... Uh, that's something that, you know, we would encourage you to go research on your own. Uh, we just don't have time to get into it. It's yeah. not like we're trying, not trying to talk about yeah. it. We just don't have time. But th this story, I think, can explain the, the hysteria yeah. that led yeah, up to absolutely. that. Absolutely. Uh, now, mass hysteria is actually, I love learning about stuff like this, like psychological things. And it's a really interesting area of study, I think. But in order to keep it kind of like, I don't know. Now I can't think of my words. But to keep it more clinical and and kind of detached, uh, researchers don't call it mass hysteria because that has negative connotations. They call it collective obsessional behavior. Mm -hmm. So if you're not aware of what mass hysteria is, it's basically... So I'm, I'm having flashbacks to our very first episode. Of what you can't say? Things you can't say. Oh, yeah. You can't say mass hysteria. You have to say collective obsessional behavior. So, I'm sorry, not mass hysteria. Collective obsessional behavior is the idea that one person or a small group of people are experiencing um, maybe some sort of phenomenon. It could be a sickness. It could be uh, just a mental thing. It really can be, it can be a belief any anything really can be as long as it's just a small group and then it kind of catches on like wildfire and spreads through an entire population. Yeah, I mean just as an example 
what I think a lot of people may be aware of. If we talk about the the Salem witches, yeah, and is we'll, a good example, and that might be a story we'll do sometime. Well, yeah, maybe maybe spooky October twenty twenty, but um, and we're gonna talk some more about mass hysteria toward the end of the show and some different examples of uh, more kind of contemporary mass hysteria. Yeah, I'm gonna go at to keep things in context of 1942 because that was the term being used then. It's still being used. Okay. Honestly, I think the only and people it, that call it collective obsessional behavior are researchers. And while we are researchers, hmm. we're not clinical <laughs> researchers, so we don't count. Yeah. So I'm, to keep it in context of 1942, I'm going to continue to call it mass hysteria because my notes do say mass hysteria, well, and I can't think fast enough on my feet to make that correction. Well, and it's also easier to say than collective obsessional behavior, although... We could call it Cobb. No. I'm going to call it mass hysteria. <laughs> okay. Okay, but mass hysteria is also described as a conversion disorder. This is a period or a, a state in which a person has physiological symptoms affecting the... Ner- this is straight from the book. Affecting the nervous system in the absence of a physical cause of illness and which may appear in reaction to a a psychological distress. So kind of like a psychological placebo effect. You know, you know the placebo effect when you get, like when um, they're testing out medication or whatever and they want to make sure that it works. And so they give basically like, they call it a sugar pill. They, They have two groups. There's the control group that gets the placebo, the not medication. And then there's the group that gets the real medication. And neither group knows which one they're getting, and so they are, you know. Yeah, same. I think but, I think yeah. if you went to Webster's Dictionary and you looked up mass and you looked up hysteria, <laughs> you would get it <laughs> would be, it says right here? be perfectly clear what's happening okay. here. Yeah, I think I think uh, yeah, we're hey, not we're not you, trying to talk down to you. So guys. Can <laughs> you, you know what it is? Yeah. Can you lead us up to yes, I the Battle be, of Los Angeles? I would be happy to lead us into the Battle of Los Angeles. All right, so we're going to back up a little bit to December 7th, 1941, uh, when Pearl Harbor, Hawaii was attacked. Now, Pearl Harbor was a military installation in Hawaii. uh, And in 1941, Hawaii and Alaska, I just want to put this out there, were not yet states. They were territories, but they weren't states yet. Um, So we had a rather large naval installation at Pearl Harbor, And at this point, the United States had mostly been out of World War II, but the attack on Pearl Harbor kind of tipped, not even kind of, the attack on Pearl Harbor did tip the scales. Um, Brought us into World War II kicking and screaming. Absolutely. On uh, that date, in December 7th, uh, President Roosevelt asked Congress to declare war on Japan with a very famous speech. So even if you don't know much about Pearl Harbor... Can I say it? Yeah, I guarantee you've heard the speech, but okay. so give me your best Roosevelt. Okay, so my best Roosevelt on this speech, that after the attack on Pearl Harbor, President Roosevelt went to Congress and asked for a declaration of war. And so my best Roosevelt. Okay, Yesterday, go. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, that speech. That You sounded just like him. Yep. I should have thrown in some like... For background noise. I can probably make that happen. Okay. Anyway, um, I think that we are so far removed now from Pearl Harbor that it is, for a lot of us, it's just kind of a thing that happened that maybe our grandparents were involved in, possibly our parents, depending on your the age of, you know, how old you are. Um, when I was in school, I had a an instructor who had been a Pearl Harbor survivor. But if you think about it right now, those, those those people right now, they're, they're in their 90s. Eight, very late 80s and 90s, and most of them have already passed. Yeah, so I think for a lot of us, it's just kind of, uh, oh, it, it was something that happened that we learn about in history class, maybe. But it, it was that generation's 9-11, to kind of put it in context. And I kind of will mention 9-11 a couple of times because I think that most of you can relate uh, and kind of use that to get your mind around the sort of, um, mentality of the of post Pearl Harbor was um, if you can remember right after 9-11 when everything I, I never will forget for a, a couple of days there was no music on the radio and it was the weirdest thing 
and just everybody came together, but everybody was super also distrustful of other people. And you just never, it was just an odd, disjointed feeling. And you know, you know what I remember most? What's that? After immediately after 9 11, after the attacks, that afternoon, how quiet everything was. You heard no traffic, it was just quiet. I was out of town at the time. And so uh, I was driving back home. And yeah, I, there wasn't a lot of, I, we had the radio on. So we were listening to talk radio. Um, but yeah, I don't remember a lot of traffic on the roads or anything. Yeah. But so to give you insight, and I also want to bring up 9-11 because some of the numbers are similar. In fewer than two hours on December 7th, 21 ships were sunk or damaged, 88 planes were damaged, and 2,403 people, including 68 civilians, were killed. Now, I think some of the differences, which to me are not significant, but... I I don't think it's significant. It was that many lives were lost. Yes, over 2,000 lives were lost, 68 civilians, but... So that's maybe one of the differences is just a military installation versus not a military installation. But the thing that I almost think is worse in Pearl Harbor than 9-11 is the the damage of not lives lost. Obviously, that is horrible, and, and we're not talking about that. But as far as damages go, buildings versus 21 ships and 88 planes when you're on the brink of war. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I feel like Pearl Harbor was more damaging than to, to to us on the brink of war. They destroyed, they took out so much of our weaponry. I think a lot of military historians right now will say that was the worst thing that Japan could have done. Okay. We've all heard the thing. I'm afraid we've awoken a sleeping giant, but Mm -hmm. the, the fleet anchored at Pearl Harbor that day was old. It was aging. And I don't think Japan at that time envisioned, okay, so w- the plan was to knock out the battleships and knock out the aircraft carriers, which the aircraft carriers were out at sea, and they knocked out these battleships. But what that forced them to do, or forced the United States to do, was build new, more modern... That's so, true. tactically, Japan made a very bad error by doing this. That's true. I didn't really think about that, yeah. but I don't imagine that you can build a battleship very quickly. Yeah. You, you, <laughs> when, you, when you lit a fire, then I guess maybe you can. Yeah, they did. Uh, so anyway, all that to say that the U.S. Um, was on edge and super nervous. The Battle of Los Angeles, quote unquote, battle happened in February. So this in February 1942. So this was December 7th, 1941. And from between, you know, December, January and most of February, there had been numerous rumors that Japanese submarines were off the southeast coast of Alaska. Residents of Juneau had mandatory nightly blackouts on December 9th. 1941, there were unsubstantiated reports of approaching aircraft uh, in New York City that sent a minor invasion panic, sent stock prices tumbling. On the West Coast, inexperienced pilots and radar men had mistaken fishing boats, logs, and even whales for Japanese warships and submarines. So everybody's super tense right now. Oh, yeah. Tensions were running really high at this time, and it didn't help that the U.S. Secretary of War Henry Stimson put out a warning that American city, citizens cities should be prepared to accept occasional blows from enemy forces. People, they, tensions were high. Occasional people, blows. Occasional blows. That's kind of intense. Yeah. Well, people reported that a Japanese aircraft carrier was outside the waters of San Francisco Bay. And what this happened to do, it caused the Oakland City Schools to close down and issue a mandatory blackout with radio silence. In Seattle, a mob of two, some 2,000 people smashed into businesses that had forgotten to turn their lights off during mandatory blackouts. So they, they smashed the window went in, and they, the oh, and they turned their lights and they turned their lights out. Yeah. So not only that, but 500. <laughs> well, this would have been good duty, maybe. 500 <laughs> U.S. military troops were moved into the Walt Disney Studio lot. We're going to Disney. Yeah, I don't think that 
I don't know. I mm, I don't, yeah. I don't think that that's necessarily think was out the there best. Him that day. But uh, Pearl Harbor caused a fear of Japanese Americans at this time, and this is the part of American history that is not not the best part of American history. And it wasn't seen so much with the German Americans, but it was with the Japanese Americans. Well, and the the way, Germans didn't attack us. Yeah, and so th- there there are differences, and that is a whole other show right there. Yeah. So we, we can avoid that topic right now just to say this this happened. On February 19th, President Roosevelt signed an executive order allowing the rest and the internment of Japanese Americans. So the first people to be interned were residents of a nearby fishing village called Terminal Island. About 3,000 people were taken into custody. Now, the entire country was worked up over war, but the West Coast of the United States was really worked up and hyped up into a frenzy and a fear and a panic over all this stuff. Yeah, and interestingly, though, the only real attack on America came, like, during this period, came on February 23rd. So there were lots of reports, lots of things going on nearby in the territories and in other waters, but actually on mainland America, there was only one real attack. The Japanese Imperial Navy, or the Imperial Japanese Navy, sorry. I don't, I don't want to mix up my words there. They, uh, they had a submarine, I-17. Now, the Japanese government was concerned for whatever reason, about President Roosevelt's regular fireside chat radio speech that was scheduled for February 23rd, 1942. Now, the fireside chat speeches were, uh, regu- like, it was a regular thing yeah. that he did. And we talked about this in our media literacy yep. episode, I think. Um, so it was just his way of connecting with the, the American public and uh, just kind of giving them the rundown on what's going on in the country and so on and so forth. But for whatever reason... They were really worried about this particular day. And so Japan ordered uh, a nearby submarine to shell the California coast on that day. Being the I-17. The I-17, yes. Now, a naval reserve officer by the name of Nishino had commanded a pre-war merchant ship that sailed through the Santa Barbara Channel. And that ship had once stopped at the Elwood oil field to take on a cargo of oil. So the Japanese government charged him with the mission. Now, their intelligence seemed to be a little bit off. And this is where that 1941 really It was really good, yeah, because here's what happened. About 7 p.m. on February 23rd, 1942, the I-17 came to a stop opposite the Elwood oil field, and Nishino ordered his deck gun cleared for action. The crew took aim at a Richfield aviation fuel tank just beyond the beach, and the Japanese opened fire about 15 minutes later with the first rounds landing near a storage facility. The oil field's workmen had mostly returned home at that point, but there was a skeleton crew on duty, and they heard the first rounds hit. They thought that it was an internal explosion until one man spotted the I-17 in the distance. Uh Uh-oh. And then an oiler by the name of G, I don't know what the G stands for, his name was G, Brown, later told reporters that the enemy submarine looked so big to him that he thought it must be a cruiser or a destroyer until he realized that just one gun was firing. Okay, so now at this time, Nishino, he turned his attention to the second storage tank. Brown and the others called the cops. I mean, what else are you going to do? You're going to call the cops. I mean, he can't call the Navy. (laughs) Yeah, someone's shelling our oil field out here. So they called the cops as they were being shelled by the I-17. Now, it was dark. The I-17 was out in the ocean. It was rocking. It was pitching waves. Their deck gun wasn't exactly sophisticated with radar. It was pretty much you had to aim, point, and fire, just like a rifle or pistol now. So what? it didn't have radar guidance or anything like that. So naturally, the rounds are going to miss. A lot, a lot of rounds miss their target. One round shot right over Wheeler's Inn, and a guy named Lawrence Wheeler, who was the owner... Called the cops. I mean, what else you want to do? He so the called cops the, are getting all these phone calls. Yeah. He called. So Lawrence called the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Office. The deputy on duty assured him that the warplanes were already on their way. The Japanese shells destroyed a, a derrick and a pump house. The Elwood Pier and a catwalk also took some minor damage with this. But this whole thing took about 20 minutes. 
when the I-17 stopped shooting, the submarine sailed away and went back to Japan, even though it only caused light damage. $500 worth of damage. Nishino. Like, not even light okay, damage. But let's put that in today's terms. That's probably okay, like that's a million true. dollars, okay? Well. Nishino had achieved his purpose, which was to spread fear along the American West Coast. The uh, Reverend Arthur Basham of Mont- Montecito called the police and said he saw the enemy submarine from his house. He told the police the I-17 turned south towards Los Angeles. He also reported that the I-17 was flashing signals to someone on shore. Now, the truth was, like I just said, the I-17, they did their 20 minutes worth of shooting. They turned west, and they sailed back to Japan. And also, we should note that you mentioned that the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Office told uh, uh, Lawrence Wheeler that warplanes were on their way, but no, no warplanes ever showed up. Like they, that, that's not true. He just, he just pacified him at that point. Yeah. But the combination of all this stuff, it fried people because they'd already been worked oh, yeah. up in this hype and this frenzy, and now they, they did. They were, they were being shelled. It fried people's nerves. If People had been on edge before. They were Ooh. really, they were really on edge right now. Yeah. So this is on February twenty third. Now, now we get to the Battle of Los the Angeles. Battle of Los Angeles. Sometime during the day on February twenty fourth. Now my timeline is a little sketchy here, but it's, I mean, within reason. Sometime during the day on February twenty fourth, naval intelligence issued a warning that an attack from the Japanese could be expected within the next ten hours. At seven eighteen p.m. So this is roughly 24 hours later. Uh, a yellow alert was issued after radar detectors picked up objects about 100 miles off the coast moving rapidly toward Los Angeles. Versus a red alert? Yeah, yeah, it was a yellow alert. But okay. I, yeah. At 10.33 p.m., the all clear was sounded. But then at 2.25 a.m. on February 25th, Air raid sirens started going off after reports of a, quote, unidentified object was seen in the skies near Santa Monica. Oh, you just wait. The Los Angeles Times wrote, powerful searchlights from countless stations stabbed the sky with brilliant probing fingers while anti-aircraft batteries dotted the heavens with beautiful, if sinister, orange bursts of shrapnel. I love the way they wrote and used their words back then. I know, right? Chaos reigned over the next several minutes. (laughs) It seemed like Los Angeles was under attack, but then a lot of the people who looked skyward saw nothing but smoke and, like, the glare of, like, fire from the guns. You know, guns and stuff. Um, Coastal Artillery Corps Captain, or Colonel, I'm sorry, Coastal Artillery Corps Colonel John G. Murphy later wrote, imagination could have easily disclosed many shapes in the sky in the midst of that weird symphony of noise and color, but cold detachment disclosed no planes of any type in the sky, friendly or enemy. Okay, so now if you're just asleep in your house... And, and you, you hear, hear the, air raid sirens. Okay, you hear air raid sirens. Now you hear the guns shooting off. You're yeah. you're under attack. Yeah, that they thought they were under attack. Bombs the, exploded over the city as over fourteen hundred rounds of ammunition were discharged. Okay, so now I'm thinking back to nineteen the movie nineteen forty one. And <laughs> if you don't know who Slim Pickens is, look him up. He's he's a he's, he's funny. He's funny. And so I picture right now, in the words of coastal artilleryman Charles Patrick, in the movie, I picture that they took this character and they put it to Slim Pickens, although he wasn't on Slim Pickens was captured by, he was out and he got captured. And he was his on the, character. His character did yeah. on the submarine. So, but I think this is where they. They probably got from this guy. Yeah. Yeah, I could see it. So Charles Patrick said. I could barely see the planes, but they were up there all right. I could see six planes, and shells were bursting all around them. Naturally, all us fellows were anxious to get in our two cents worth in, and when the command came, everybody cheered like a son of a gun. Except there were no planes in reality. No, there weren't. (sighs) Not that they knew. Not that they knew. Yeah, it's mass hysteria. the, The shelling, we don't use that term. It's Cobb. Okay. The shelling lasted about an hour, 
and then the all clear again was sounded and the blackout order lifted about 7.21 a.m. that morning. Now, to many other people, however, the attack appeared very real. Like I said, you know, if you're just laying there in bed oh, yeah. and you hear these guns and explosions going off, you're under attack. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Reports poured in from all over the city. Japanese aircraft were flying in formation. The city was being bombed. Enemy paratroopers were jumping into the city. There was even a report that a Japanese plane had crash-landed in the streets of Hollywood. Now, there were some serious things that, like, some of this stuff was, most of it was untrue, but some of it was, had roots in truth. A statement from the Army's Western Defense Command the next day. Although reports were conflicting and every effort is being made to ascertain the facts, it is clear that no bombs were dropped and no planes were shot down. However, shrapnel covered the city. A dud 12 and a half pound anti-aircraft round, which not a bomb, but still pretty freaking big, found on a golf course in Long, in Long Beach. Another one found on a Santa Monica driveway. A farmer on Vermont Avenue spent hours ra- rounding up a stampeding herd after one of his cows <laughs> had been killed by an explosion. I bet the rest of them get, didn't oh give no for months. Right? At least, and at least three, this is my favorite part. In at least three cases, people's beds were destroyed, but they were uninjured because like good Americans, they had gone outside to watch the shelling. Just like the 4th of July. I, so when I was researching this, we kind of talked a little bit about it. And I was like, I think back, I think about London and like you hear London getting actual bombs and like the Londoners had the good sense to stay inside. You hear air raid sirens. They're like, oh, let's go inside and get safe. Americans hear air raid sirens. They're like, hey, what's this? You head outside, bundle up the kids. Let's go watch the town get shelled. I think that was a completely (laughs) different situation, though. Now, there were five deaths, so I don't want to make complete light of the situation. Um, Two were heart attacks, and three, including a police officer, were auto accidents caused by drivers who were distracted by what was going on overhead. So... Uh, I mean, they didn't have the cell phones to text and drive back then, but they they did have distracted driving even in 1942. Um, In a preview of the hysteria that would as soon accompany the Japanese internment, authorities also arrested some 20 Japanese Americans for allegedly trying to signal the non-existent aircraft. Okay. And over... How did this happen? Well... Over the next few days, government media outlets issued contradictory reports on what later became known as the Battle of Los Angeles, and Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox dismissed the firefight as a false alarm brought on by jittery nerves. However, Secretary of War Henry Stimson wasn't buying this. He continued to echo the Army brass and said that there were at least 15 enemy planes that had buzzed the city. He even suggested... An interesting theory that phantom fighters, those phantom fighters, may have been commercial aircraft operated by enemy agents. So I guess he was just trying to keep the level of alertness high and the fear on public's mind to, uh. to, to keep up the, the war setting, setting that they needed to have or wanted to yes. have at this time. So later on, though, I, I guess the heat got a little too much for Secretary of War Stimson. He backpedaled his claims just a little bit. But there was still that pesky little issue that thousands of military personnel and civilians claimed to have seen aircraft in the skies over Los Angeles that night. So we, we, how do you deal with this? People said they saw... Why, why do people say they see things that they don't see? They just want to be a part of this or what? Can you explain this one to me, Kim? Yeah, I mean, it, it could be just that they... You know, they want to be a part of it. Or I think, I mean, this is textbook mass hysteria. It's, <laughs> you see, you, it's it's almost kind of like the telephone game, you know, where you play, you, you play telephone where you whisper something in somebody's ear and then they have, you only tell them once and then they tell the person next to them what they think they heard you say and then it like goes around a circle and by the time it comes back to you, it's totally not even close to what you said. I think it could be something like that 
where it literally was the telephone. Like you would have somebody in Long Beach calling somebody in Santa Barbara and be like, do you have, is this going on where you are? Yeah, I heard this or I heard that. I think it could be a part of that. I think the fact that it was nighttime and confusion, confusion, there is a lot of smoke in the air. Like we've heard the fog of war. Right. Yeah. Like a literal fog. Yeah. Confusion. Um, So I think it could be a lot of things and just everybody's nerves were shot. Like they knew that there was an actual shelling just a day ish before day, a few hours before so I don't blame the people of Los Angeles at all. For seeing things that weren't there. Yeah. I mean, so I I can't remember if we talked about it when we talked about urban legends or not, but when we t- covered Mothman, we talked about, <laughs> mentioned Mothman, there actually was a really interesting study, um, not really a study, but like an experiment with people who claimed that they saw Mothman and they cut out, so the people that did the experiment, they cut out different sizes of... We talked about, yeah. Did we, we did. talk about yeah, it? Yeah, we, we talked about that. Uh, so basically, like, they had different sizes of, quote-unquote, Mothman, and then they exposed people to it, just real quick driving by, and then they asked them to say how, ta- how like, big was the thing that they saw, and they were way off because the mind is a tricky thing. And I think that that is very similar to what happened here, where... You know, they think they saw a 10-foot-tall Mothman, but they really only saw a 3-foot-tall Mothman. Yeah. Now, we need to go back to Jay on this part right here. Oh, I love okay, this theory. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, so according to an editorial in the New York Times, some witnesses claim to have seen a big floating object resembling a balloon. Uh-huh. This sparks stories of UFOs and aliens attacking Los Angeles. Now, at this time, we know we didn't call these UFOs, but they call them flying saucers. And where have we heard the weather balloon excuse before? Roswell. Roswell. Uh, and so, I mean, it was so the Los Angeles Times. I loved. Uh, was it the LA Times? Well, this article was from the New York Times. Yeah, I love what they said here. What'd they say, Kim? They said um, in their article, The more the whole incident of the early morning of February 25th in the Los Angeles district is examined, the more incredible it becomes. Oh, yeah. So shortly after the alarm, speculation ran rampant as to its cause. Uh, We talked about the quote-unquote weather balloons. Some people suggested that the Japanese were launching planes from a secret base in Mexico, while other people theorized that they had developed a submarine capable of carrying aircraft, which would actually kind of be cool. It was even suggested that the event had been staged in order to convince defense companies located near the coast to move their operations further inland. Now, the Japanese military later claimed that it had never flown an aircraft over the city during World War II, providing fuel for a host of bizarre theories involving government conspiracies and visits by flying saucers and extraterrestrials, like we mentioned. But I think in all honesty, it was just a whole lot of scared people in the wake of an actual attack from a submarine, and it just blew up. I think what has been decided. And again, we have the advantage of hindsight. So maybe that's why we think this is so unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. But most likely what happened and the most logical explanation to all this for the battle of Los Angeles is that night is that the soldiers manning the guns were just as hyped up as everybody else was. Plus at that time, the radar systems that the coastal artillery batteries had, they were really very elementary that they didn't they just didn't have the sophistication that radar has right now oh yeah so you combine the nerves and the readings on the radar and these people probably well probably they genuinely believed that they were under attack yeah and and once the shooting started there you know there was a disorienting combination of searchlights and smoke and and shrapnel from uh, from you know the guns and whatever, and so they might have the gunners might have actually thought that they were firing on enemy planes that weren't actually there. Maybe we shouldn't be making fun of this. Hmm. <laughs> so anyway, in 1983, 
the Office of Air Force History released information about the Los Angeles, what they say is the Los Angeles Air Raid, we call it the Battle of Los Angeles, and claimed that meteorological balloons had been released prior to the barrage to help determine wind conditions. Their lights and silver color could have been what the soldiers saw and started the shooting that night. So as we mentioned before, right now in February 2020, we have the hindsight to go and look back what happened. So a February 24th, 1992, Los Angeles Times article by Jack Smith said this. The toll among, this gets crazy, the toll among air raid wardens was especially high. They were said to have acted with valor throughout the entire attack. One fell from a wall while looking into a lighted apartment and broke his leg. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Why was, okay. Well, well, (laughs) what was he doing looking in this apartment? Yeah, I was going to say, why is he he looking into a lighted apartment? Like, there's... I think I would have knocked on the door and said, turn right. your light out. So that and like, what? I don't. I think, I think we had a peeping Tom right there. Yeah. Okay. Another jumped a three foot fence to reach a lighted house and he sprained his ankle. Now I can see that happening. You're excited. I mean, I've sprained my ankle many times, right? I guess, but at the same time, like, why didn't you just, was the gate? Not nearby that he felt that he had to climb the fence. I don't know. They were, I mean, I mean, they were worked up. I guess I, we, we got to get there. We got to tell them to turn this light off right now. Yeah. I'm not going to go to the gate. I'm going to jump the fence and I'm not going to knock on their door and say, please turn out your light because we're under blackout conditions. I'm going to peek in your window first. He's going to like lean over. He like leaned over a wall. I don't understand how. I can I can see the fence jumping guy like okay I can get that but if you're leaning that far over a railing first of all how did he even I don't buy that one for a second how did if he's like above I'm trying to picture this if he's above the lighted window like how is he, I guess the light from the window would kind of shine out a little bit yeah I can't picture but how, how this happened how I mean it's not usually buildings are not there's some like you have to lean pretty far over. How did he? If someone were to be peeking into our window, they wouldn't have to lean. No, but if you're like in an apartment building or whatever, whatever, which is what I'm imagining, you're on the edge of the like you're on the roof of the apartment building, presumably, and you have to lean over the edge. Like you have to lean really far over the edge to be seen into a window. There's no he, that guy's an idiot. Another guy fell down on his own front stairs. And he broke his arm. Okay, now that guy I can see. I can see you doing I'm, this. I I can. How many times? So how many times have guy. you slipped down our stairs? I for a while there, Steve would not let me wear like I had to wear shoes to go down the stairs because in what was it like a two month period? I felt like five different times or something. It was right almost, on right on your bottom. It was weekly. Like to one time, I fell so hard that I actually thought that I broke my butt. So, and it was because I was always going down the stairs a little too fast in my socks and I slipped and fell. So that guy, I have sympathy for. Klutz. Uh, I mean, yeah, we're out there. Klutz. Okay. Um, there was scattered structural damage caused by anti-aircraft shells that failed to explode in the air, but did so when they hit the ground. So look, little, little fact of life right here. Whatever goes up is going to come down. So they're shooting all this anti-aircraft stuff up in the air, all these rounds. Yeah, well, and, we, and 1,400 rounds. And we talked about how some of it, one of them landed on a golf course, one of them landed in somebody's driveway, like came through the roof. Well, those are just the unexploded rounds that, that came down They were found. Yeah, oh, yeah. So, like, when these guns go up and they shoot, they explode and they, they emit shrapnel. Yeah. Hopefully to hit an enemy airplane to knock it down. I mean, you don't just shoot this gun and hope, the big bullet goes and hits the airplane. It goes up so high and it explodes. So all that shrapnel started falling to the ground. So I imagine it sounded And these idiots out on like their front that. porches watching all this stuff. It's amazing that more people weren't killed. Yeah. So there was more damage with these rounds that, that came back down. It demolished the garage here. I, I remember this is from the article. Demolishing the garage here, a patio there, 
and blowing out a tire on a parked automobile. Wow, that's pretty intense. That's actually pretty intense. Like, what's the uh, the insurance we've got? Oh, mayhem. Mayhem or uh, the farmers. The farmers insurance. Oh commercial. yeah, where they have we've, the. We've seen it. We've seen it. We've seen it. Yeah. So and if, we've covered it. Yeah. So if my tire ever gets shot out on my Jeep by the Battle of Los Angeles. Yeah, we're gonna have to go to farmers, and I want to hear the guy say, "Yeah, we've seen it. We've got it covered." Exultation was in the air. The city had met its first taste of war with valor. Oh. It was exhilarating, but exultation turned to embarrassment. As it should have. The next day, when the Secretary of the Navy said there had been no air raid, no enemy planes, it was just a case of jitters. Which, I mean, it sounds silly now. Like I said, we have the hindsight to look back. But let's talk about some other cases of mass hysteria that just, I mean, the the phenomena itself is its craziness. I mean, we talked about, uh, obviously, the one that I think most will come to people's mind first is the Salem Witch Trials, where when you have a bunch of pubescent girls and prepubescent girls with nothing else to do except stir up trouble. Hmm. And actually, I... Girls do that. I know, right? Okay. I actually have read uh, that the Salem Witch Trials may... It, it was obviously mass hysteria, but I have read that um, some of the signs and symptoms that the girls exhibited were actually could have been caused by a type of mold that grew like um, it grows on the on bread. And if you eat it, it causes hallucinations. And so they didn't know they probably didn't know that back at the time. And so some of the girls may have eaten moldy bread Mushrooms? And, uh, no, I don't. It's not mushroom. I, it is some kind of a like a, sim, a similar fungus to a like a like a magic mushroom. But um, they didn't they didn't realize that that what was going on. And so some of it was exaggerated, but some of it and and this is just a theory. Like they, but they it had possibly a scientific explanation at the outset. Um, in 1962, in more modern times. The great June bug (laughs) epidemic. The June bug epidemic. (laughs) Uh, In 1962, a mysterious disease broke out in a dressmaking department of a U.S. textile factory. The symptoms included numbness, nausea, dizziness, and vomiting, which to me sounds a lot like the flu, but okay. Word of a bug in the factory, like a literal bug, like a, a June bug. Uh, that would bite its victims and cause them to develop the symptoms quickly spread. And soon, 62 employees developed this mysterious illness, some of whom were hospitalized. The news media reported the case. And of course, once the news media gets a hold of something like the coronavirus... Well, they, this is 1962. We didn't have a 24-hour news cycle. Yeah, but even st- but then in 1962, didn't, weren't there like multiple editions of the newspaper that came out every day? I think I wasn't reading <laughs> in 1962. Um, anyway, the news media reported on the case. And after some research by company physicians and experts from the public health uh, communicable disease center, it was concluded that the case was one of mass hysteria. While the researchers believed that some workers were bitten by this bug, the anxiety was probably the cause of most of the symptoms uh, like dizziness and nausea, uh, which this actually kind of reminded me, uh, no evidence was ever found for a bug that could cause the flu-like symptoms and all the workers, uh, not all the workers demonstrated bites, but this, when I was reading about this, you know what it made me think of? And tell me last weekend. So I'm, I'm trying to think we, okay. So I don't know if we've talked on the show about Ramona, I have a snake named Ramona and she's a, she's a little baby snake and we've been trying to feed her for like 12 or six weeks, something like you that. You have been trying to feed her I for six I have been weeks. trying to feed her frozen thawed pinky mice, which is what she should be eating. Um, and she has not been cooperative. And so we went down to Cincinnati last Saturday to a reptile show that's down there every week where you can buy live pinky mice. Um, 
which are kind of, they're hard to find. So we had to go down there. We took the little grandkids with us and one of them is deathly afraid of snakes, but she likes lizards. So she agreed to go. And on the way down, she, she was complaining. She's like, my stomach hurts. I don't feel good. And she'd been fine that morning. So we thought that it was just nerves from the snakes. Uh, and then later on that night, she yeah. spiked a fever and had Luby. <laughs> so as we were walking through the snake show, she, was she really held brave. my hand so tight through that whole exhibit. But, but she was She very was a brave. trooper. She went but. through and she did it all. But I felt so bad because like the whole time I was thinking, oh, she's just afraid of these snakes and they're not going to get her. They're clearly like the, a lot of them are babies that don't even have teeth. And the ones that are big snakes are behind like three layers of glass. And she was perfectly safe the whole time. But then when we found out later that night that she had a fever and then next day mom took her to the doctor and turns out she has flu B and she really was feeling nauseous. So I, I thought about her when I was reading about this June bug epidemic. Well, in Blackburn, England in 1965, to get back to mass hysteria, uh, in Sorry. October 1965, at a girls' school in Blackburn, seven girls, several girls complained of dizziness. I'm seeing... Some fainted. Within a couple of hours, 85 girls, 85 from the school, were rushed by ambulance to a nearby hospital after fainting. Symptoms including swooning, moaning... Chattering of teeth. Uh, it's young, young people. I'm seeing this. Like, I'm seeing young girls. It's not always, like I have a couple of instances where it's not just girls, but it is predominantly school age kids okay. so that let, are. Now let's let's think here a minute though. The Beatles. Have you ever that's seen true. when the Beatles came over? Girls were yeah, that's fainting true. and passing out, and they did this with Elvis too. That's okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, no, I'm not just like picking on the girls at this yeah. point, but no, it's just. I know. No, you're, you're could, right. Yeah. Could I mean, you, could you include this as a case of mass hysteria? Uh, I Beatles mean, yeah, walk, I would say so. The Beatles walk down off the airplane and girls are fainting. Yeah, I would say so, which is a whole, that's a whole other episode too. If you're fainting because you see somebody famous, you got some issues. But anyway, so in Blackburn, England, they're swooning. They're yeah. well, a chattering medic- of teeth. A medical analysis of the event about a year later found out that the outbreaks began among the 14-year-olds. Of course they did. But at the heaviest incident moved to the youngest age groups. There was no evidence of pollution of you know by, through food or through the air. The younger girls proved more susceptible to this. But, you know, during the Battle of Los Angeles, it wasn't young girls. Oh, no, it was no. everybody. Yeah, but the disturbance was more severe and lasted longer in the older girls. So, under this, the ethnic personality inventory, those affected had higher scores for extroversion and neuroticism. It oh. was, yeah, I said it. They're neurotic. It was, All right yeah, then. It was considered that the epidemic was hysterical. That a pre and they they attributed this that a previous polio epidemic had rendered the population emotionally vulnerable and that's a big thing like it again it has to be for mass hysteria doesn't just come out of nowhere generally it follows some other thing that has left people emotionally in a weird place and with the battle of los angeles oh absolutely that's exactly what happened here because people were all hyped up for this Mm -hmm. and we've been on war edge of war for months and months and months, expecting an attack someplace in the South Pacific. It happened at Pearl Harbor, and then the government, the Army, the Secretary of the War, everyone is saying, be prepared, be prepared. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it's going to happen. And so people started seeing this. So it's, to me, now I'm not a professional. This is just my personal opinion here. Yeah. It's the exact same thing that had happened that put people on the nerve. Yeah. The um, nerves were shot. In 1976, in uh, Mount Pleasant, Mississippi, school officials suspected drug use after 15 students fell to the ground writhing, but no drugs were found, and hysteria is assumed to be the culprit. And at one point, a third of the school's 900 students stayed home for fear of being hexed. So... Hexed. I... Are we talking witches now? 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And we're going to kind of transition. Witches. Salem. I know. Right. Yep. Uh, I actually think that this is probably just a senior prank, but I wasn't there. So I don't know. Um, And speaking of witches, uh, we can talk about the satanic panic in the eighties. There was a, a, for a while there um, in the 1980s and early nineties, daycare sex abuse hysteria was kind of a moral panic that, uh, a lot of daycare providers were accused of several forms of childhood abuse or child abuse, including satanic ritual abuse. There was that period where everywhere you looked, there were Satanists. And, uh, and it, I mean, they call it the satanic panic for a reason. And we've watched a lot of documentaries about this. Yeah. Can you, I mean, do you, do you remember? I, I was a little, a little young for, <laughs> for this, but no, we, we, we well, you were in, you were probably in Germany at the time, weren't you? When all this was going on. So you probably weren't even here. Not for the all the time during that. No. Okay. Do you remember it? Like, do you remember the yeah, Satanic I rem- Panic? I remember and... watching, but I'm thinking of these, the documentaries about the three boys was three boys from Arkansas. Oh yeah. The, yeah. 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 I forget. Oh, what case is that? I'm, I, my brain stopped working, but, um, so yeah, I mean, there are all kinds uh, in Mexico City, and this is another example. Uh, it, this was just in 2007, so kind of fairly recently. Near Chalco in Mexico, uh, it's a working-class suburb of Mexico City. There was a massive outbreak of unusual symptoms suffered by adolescent female students at Children's Village School, a Catholic boarding school. The affil- afflicted students had difficulty walking and were feverish and nauseated, and it's interesting too um, that to me this one it's interesting to me that it's at a Catholic boarding school because that's another uh, I don't want to say it's not quite mass well, hysteria. Well, then don't say it. No, no, I mean it's not quite mass hysteria, but you talk about religious um, kind of iconography too. Like you hear about bleeding statues and statues that. Uh, like weep oil and stuff, and there will be pilgrims that come from all over the world to see these things that are allegedly happening. And some of the, I mean, I'm not here to say whether they happened or whether they didn't, but some of them are obviously fakes. Some of them maybe are real miracles. I don't know, but it's it's well, that same kind of um, mentality. It's not necessarily like a panic, but it's that mass. Uh, not like a hysteria is like a panic, but a mass kind of everybody wants to go and see this miracle um, from a religious standpoint. So it's not even like sickness or bad things. Sometimes it's a quote unquote good thing that uh, it takes people by storm and everybody wants to see it and be a part of it. Yeah. I think another example that I I think a lot of people have heard of is the Orson Welles, the war of the worlds. And we touched on this just a couple of weeks ago that, yeah, I mean, I think we've actually determined that no one actually died. No one actually committed suicide. So, no. but again, how did these stories get started? Well, and if, there's if another, no one really did it, who started reporting this stuff? Yeah, well, and there's another thing that I actually um, was just watching earlier today that uh, there's, and I would love to cover this sometime, maybe. In Japan, there is what they call it the suicide forest. Have you heard of this? No. There is a forest in Japan where people go to commit suicide. And, like, they find at the end of every, or they go, like, in the fall or whatever, or in the spring, and they just go through, like, the government people go through, like, the parks people go through this forest, and they usually find 70 to 100 bodies of just people that have just, yeah, they just go... And it has a reputation, and there are, like, signs up saying don't, you know, here go for help. Here are some resources or whatever. But for whatever reason, people – and they – I saw um, in this documentary that was on today that the numbers are increasing. Hmm. Like, more people are going to this one place to to off themselves. And so it's that same kind of mindset of this this place – is, you know, you know. Well, let's wrap this back to the Battle of Los Angeles. True story that happened. Absolutely. Could happen again. Do you think it could happen today? I, th- I think we just saw that. Well, no. Well, are, are you talking about, I mean, right now we have nuclear weapons. You know, hopefully. That's scary, too. Hopefully everyone has a few more safeguards. But, you know, it doesn't have to go to the event of nuclear war. But... 
I mean, we we and like we just that song, the '99 Red Balloon song. Yeah, like that's what that's all about. Yeah, well, and and we did just see this happen just last it's month. Al Baghdadi. Yeah, when when he was killed, and when I mentioned coronavirus, virus, we're kind of seeing it happen with coronavirus right now. Which, um, honestly, coronavirus. If you do a little bit of research into it. It can be bad, but most of the people who are dying from it are people who were already very ill, and that it's um, the the World Health Organization is saying symptomatically it's really not much worse than like a severe case of pneumonia. So the same people that would die of pneumonia because they already have weakened immune systems are dying of coronavirus. But if you are a perfectly healthy individual that you know contracts coronavirus, you're probably going to be sick and miserable but you probably won't die from it yeah i I think at first i'm thinking where's she going with this but i think (laughs) what you're saying is there's really no need to panic if you are healthy there's no need to panic yeah we're we're in the middle of it right now i I get i get i get what you're saying with this one right here so again battle of los angeles true thing that happened we have the advantage of looking back on it right now from our standpoint and think you know this was pretty silly but you know the more i think about it if we'd have been there, you know what we'd have been doing? We'd have been out on the front porch with everybody else. We'd have been out on the front porch watching. <laughs> yeah. Watching oh, we would have. We totally would have been. And the rockets red glare. We'd have been watching all that. that we night. absolutely would have been. Yeah, absolutely. So. All right. Well. What else is going on with an hour of your life right now, Kim? Um, I would just like to thank everyone who took time to vote for us in Best of Dayton. It closed out yesterday, and we should get results back uh, in the next couple of weeks. So um, hopefully we maybe did fairly well with that. I'm pretty sure that our buddies over at Gem City Podcast are going to take one of the top three spots. So congratulations in advance to Terry and his crew. Uh, and best of luck to the rest of everybody else. Um, uh, Mike, Real Mike Kid in the Fro Show. Um, let's see, Fifth and Ludlow. Uh, oh, uh, the Brohio Podcast and Amelia Robinson. Um, best of luck to all of them. I'm sure, uh, it was a very close race. And so we'll, uh, but you know what? We never went into this expecting to win anything. No, and not at all. We're just honored we have, to have been nominated and be in such have, good company. We have made friends. Absolutely. And people we, we may even start hanging out with every now and then on some <clears> other <throat> stuff. Yeah. So, um, but thank you everybody who took time out to vote for us. Um, Steve and my friends personally, who we've accosted on Facebook every single day with reminders to go vote. Uh, thank you for your patience. Yeah. Um, so just, uh, I guess that's about it. Um, you can check us out on social media, on Facebook and Instagram, and now Twitter, where we still don't have any followers, but it's at a lost hour on Twitter, um, an hour of your life on the Facebook and the Instagram and you can write to us at a lost hour at gmail.com. Yep. And the best way that you can help us out right now is share. Share, 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 share. 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 Go to Podbean, is where we host our, our podcast at podbeam.com. Listen to us right there, but you can listen to us about anywhere you want to. Yeah, we're on Stitcher, we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Go to Podbean, the hit Alexa fo- thing. Hit follow and listen. And you know what? We're really enjoying the comments. We're getting a lot of comments from people from all over. We have a lot of listeners. Uh, a lot of listeners in Ireland in for some Ireland. reason. Yeah. And that's good because we may come over there we one day. We need a place to like, stay. We need a place to stay. So if you're in Ireland and you want to put us up for a night, just let us know. Let us know. But uh, thank you for everybody. We have a lot of exciting things coming up. Yeah. Um, you know, we... we we As Kim has make, said, we enjoy doing this. We're looking at some equipment upgrades. Mm-hmm. We do hope some to make stuff. a couple of major announcements here in the next probably month or so uh, regarding um, the show and some other stuff that we have kind of in the pipeline that we've got tricks up our sleeves. So just stay tuned. Okay. So, Kim, from the 13th Hour Studio in Beaver Creek, Ohio. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us.
Citations for this week's episode come from History.com, Evan Andrews, Sci-Fi.com, Six Things You Didn't Know About the Real Battle of Los Angeles, the LA Times article, February 24th, 1992, Los Angeles Times, Jack Smith. Jack Smith's full 1992 article, Stunning Acts of Bravery That Will Live On in Infamy, is online. Nigel Hamilton, 2015, The Mantle of Command, FDR at War, 1941-1942, Battle of Los Angeles from Wikipedia, and a list of mass hysteria cases from Wikipedia. Thank you.